Please turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. <clears throat> there are a number of things within this chapter specifically that deal with references that we find within the New Testament, especially in Romans 1 of the Apostle Paul speaking of those who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, uh, that have been declared fools because they exchanged the glory of God for that of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals. We see perhaps what the Apostle Paul is speaking of or what he is founding this upon in Romans 1 here from Deuteronomy chapter 4. We read in the book of Hebrews of the thick doom and all of this sort of language that we read in our opening passage from Deuteronomy 4. The quote that is in the book of Hebrews as well of our Lord being a consuming fire is grounded here in Deuteronomy 4. So this is indeed an important chapter that speaks much of what we find within New Testament passages. But what it does bring to mind within this specific chapter is the blessed privilege of knowing God. Out of all the nations of the earth, God has chosen this nation to render to them His statutes and His commandments and, and, the, and, and the law and all of this stuff. It is to them only. It is to them only that God has truly revealed Himself in such a way that they even heard His voice speak, not just through the messenger of God, but they actually heard Him themselves. And he references that here in this passage. The statement is made in... Deuteronomy 4, verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God, whenever we call on Him? That in itself is demonstrating the uniqueness of Israel compared to all other nations. But it is a statement that is true in reference to those that are in Christ even today, what you could say, what great nation or what great group of people, speaking of God's people, is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? That is a, that is an, a reality of the Christian faith, absolutely. Here in Deuteronomy 4, <clears throat> actually beginning in the first chapter of Deuteronomy, he has been recounting to Israel, this is the next generation, he has been recounting to them basically their history up to this point. Everything that has happened, he is summarizing it up, and this is a reaffirming of the law to the second generation. The first generation has died out, the, this generation is getting ready to go into the promised land, and so Moses is going to reaffirm the covenant. He is going to bring about the statutes and the ordinances and all of that once again to this uh, specific generation. <clears throat> it's going to be this generation as well that one half of them will stand on Mount Ebal, the other stand on Mount Gerizim and, and shout out the blessings and the curses to each other. Again, uh, speaking of the stipulations of the covenant that has been made to them. Now, Deuteronomy means second law. It's not a new law, it's not a new covenant that's being made here, it's just reaffirming what has already been um, beforehand, but it is to the next generation who are the faithful to the Lord. Even though this generation is going to show itself to be the faithful uh, generation, and granted there are some that are going to be there that are going to be disruptive and all of that, the importance of what Moses is saying to this generation is, is to remember the things that have happened before. After a tremendous failure of the previous generation, this generation, remember what has happened. Remember the, the, the deeds that the Lord has done throughout all the time wandering in the wilderness. Remember the judgments that have been given. Remember the warnings that have been given to you so that when you go into the land, it may go well with you. And there are some things that he says here that are going to be very familiar to us, at least in, in principle here, of, of serving the Lord faithfully, specifically the emphasis that he's going to put on, on, on keeping the word of the Lord. 
Remembering the word of the Lord. Following through with the word of the Lord. Emphasizing the uniqueness of God compared to any other. Because if we can recognize the uniqueness of God compared to any other, any other created thing, or any other so-called God, and recognize the beauty and the majesty of the one true God, it produces a greater desire for Him and a greater desire to serve Him. There are, of course, the warning passages here in Deuteronomy, in this specific chapter. Keep the word of the Lord. Remember the word of the Lord. Remember who God is compared to any other. And if you fail to obey Him then this is what's going to happen. There's that warning, those warning passages. And that's very common that we see even in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews. But even though those warning passage is there, then the emphasis on the blessing of God is there upon obedience. So there's that, that motivation that is being given to the people of Israel to serve the Lord faithfully and specifically uh, founded upon the uniqueness of who God is and what God has revealed. The relationship that He has that promotes in us a greater worship, a greater thankfulness, a greater, a greater service unto the Most High. So, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> there is much here, of course. We can't get through everything, but let's read verses 1. To 40, and then we will come back and begin to discuss it. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us hear what the Word of God says. Deuteronomy 4, beginning verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has... Statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you were going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. 
But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. Now the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of any, anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of, of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation? By trials, by signs and wonders, by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of the heavens, He let you hear His voice to discipline you. And on earth, He let you see His great fire. And you heard His words from the midst of the fire. Because He loved your fathers, therefore He chose their descendants after them. And He personally brought you from Egypt by His great power driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below, and there is no other. So you shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I am giving you today that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for, your, for this portion of your word. Father, thank you uh, for the revelation that we have of who you are and what you do for your people. The uniqueness of who you are compared to any other holiness of our God that cannot be compared to any other. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your own, called us to be children of God, granted us the adoption. And Father, we ask that you would teach us even more about yourself through this portion of your word by the Holy Spirit whom you have granted us. May he teach us and guide our thoughts tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Again, Moses is recounting to the people of God everything that has happened so far. There are many lessons that 
This generation has learned concerning the previous generation, the unfaithfulness of that generation, the consequences of disobedience, the consequences of sin and of wickedness and of turning from the Lord. These are all things that this generation would know well because of their, their parents and so forth. Moses, this is really his last address to them. This book is. He can't himself go into the promised land. The Lord will not allow him to go into the promised land because Moses himself did not regard the Lord as holy, did not regard him uh, with, with that, that respect in front of the, the people, that, that fear that he should have shown before the people. And so... Moses is not permitted to go into the promised land. That in itself is something to just consider for just a moment. You think of Moses, as the writer of Hebrews says, he was, he was a faithful servant in the house of God. You think that this is the man who, uh, by a mighty hand, the Lord has led his people out of Egypt, and he has done it through this man, this prophet that he has raised up. All the things that have taken place, how Moses has led them and Moses has, has guided them by the word of the Lord, teaching them the commandments of God and the statutes and all of this. And yet he's not permitted to go into the promised land. Why? Because the Lord doesn't wink at sin. The Lord does not, does not just permit sin even among those that we would consider to be the greats of the faith. Because even they themselves must treat the Lord with that holy respect, that reverence. And Moses failed to do that. Now, his punishment may seem a little bit severe <clears throat> because the Lord had told him when the people were complaining about needing more water or wanting more water, the Lord told Moses, speak to the rock and out will come water. And instead, Moses gets before the people and he basically says, do I have to do this again for you? And he strikes the rock rather than speaking to the rock as the Lord had commanded him. But you've got to understand this too, that this is the man who is out front. This is the man who is leading this entire people to be the example for this entire people. And if he doesn't treat the Lord as holy, they aren't going to treat the Lord as holy either. So even he has to suffer the consequences of his own sin in the sense of not regarding the Lord as holy. So as they are getting ready to go into the promised land, he cannot go, but he is still instructing the people. He is still trying to lead the people and to guide them. When you get there, watch yourselves. Give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, he says. That That's showing us the heart of Moses that we have seen in a number of these passages as he has interceded for such a rebellious people, interceding on their behalf, showing his love for them, his desire for them to enter into the promise of the Father. Of the Father. So here's the, one of the first things that he says to them as he has recounted all the things that have happened. He's going to reflect upon some of the, those things here in chapter 4 as we read. But from verses 1 to six, he really emphasizes to them the necessity of keeping the word of the Lord. And it really centers uh, in <clears throat> verse 2 of not adding to it and not taking away. Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that it may that so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Here it is. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. I can't tell you the number of sermons that have been done on this specific passage of Scripture to demonstrate the sufficiency of the word of God. The word of God is sufficient. There, there needs not be anything else added to the word of God or taken away from it. As, as MacArthur says, you have... No right to put in God's mouth and say what he didn't say. And you have no right to not say what he did say. You have to get it right. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. You say what the Lord has said. You teach what the Lord has taught. 
And Moses is saying here, they're going to, when they get into the promised land, they're going to encounter all kinds of people with all kinds of ideas and all kinds of gods and all of this. And Moses is telling the people, stick to what he said. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And he gives them, he, he reflects back as to what had happened that we, that we went over. He says to them, your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor from the Lord, your, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. We remember how Balaam instructed the king of Moab on how to cause Israel to stumble. Because every time Balaam had come out in order to curse Israel, instead blessings came out. He couldn't say anything other than blessings when it came to the people of God. But he did teach the king of Moab how to cause them to stumble. And so the idea is Moab is believing we can't even go against them because if we do, we're going to fail. What can we do? And basically the idea is if we cause them to stumble and to stop serving their God, their God is going to wash his hands of them and then you can go in. You can take them. So that was the idea. So the women came out, enticed the men, and then they began to participate in their celebrations to their gods, to bow down and worship their gods, committing sexual immorality and worship of the gods of Moab. They allowed someone else to come in and to give them something other than what Moses had said. Our God is this. Maybe your God is this. Your God surely wouldn't mind this because you're in our land. You know, there was that idea of that, that tribal idea that we find is Israel worships Yahweh. Moab, they worship Baal. This place over here, they worship this. So this is just speculation, only speculation. Perhaps that whenever they had the people of Israel in their own land. Maybe they're saying something to the effect of, you know, perhaps your God wouldn't mind if you come serve our God because after all, you're, you're going through our land. Maybe you should be honoring him too before you get to yours. Possibly. Again, that's only speculation. But in any event, whatever it was, allowed them to then turn from the Lord their God based on something that was said to them, something that was taught to them, and then begin to serve the gods of Moab. And Moses is saying, remember this. Because in the context in which he is bringing this up, he is saying to them, don't add to his word. Don't take away from his word. This is the example that has been given. So something and, and that he's emphasizing in verse 2, something took place similar to that whenever this specific event happened. Your eyes seen what happened. 24,000 people died because they did not regard the Lord as holy. They did not trust in the word in which he had spoken, emphasizing that he's the only God and there is no other God. But Israel allowed themselves to be enticed to something else. The word of God, as Moses is emphasizing here, the word of God is sufficient. It's enough. There need not be anything more. We don't have to have things that people seek after today to have some kind of a word from the Lord. We have His word. We know exactly what He says because it's plainly there. We don't have to read in between the lines. We don't have to to try to guess at this or guess at that, or we don't have to have some moments of meditation to see if God's going to tell us anything different than what we read. I, I know that you said this, but I'm in this specific situation, and I really want to do the opposite of this. So I'm going to sit here in silence, or I'm going to listen to some songs, or whatever the case is when people come up with, and see if you tell me something different. He's not going to say anything different than what he said. There was one guy I know who wanted to divorce his wife 
And so he heard a song on the radio. And from that song, he reasoned within himself that the Lord was telling him that it was okay. So that's what he did. That's exactly what he did. People are always looking for any other word other than what he said because perhaps they don't like what he's saying. Give me something else. Or maybe it comes out of this. Just as the seeker movement itself has gotten so popular, and what is it based on? Basically, the word of God isn't enough and we have to do something different than this. That's really what it is. Let's... let's, Set aside what the Word of God says when it comes to worship and the time of the saints gathering. Let's invert it all and make it more appealing to the unbelievers and only perform evangelism within the service of the church. Discipleship, you can go to a different church for that. So what just happened? What happens when people do that? What happens when churches do that? They have left the very foundation of anything concerning the Christian faith. Anything and everything. If this isn't good enough here, specifically when it comes to how we are to conduct worship, how can you trust what this says over here? Or when the the churches themselves, the liberal churches come in and they say, we're going to relegate this to a cultural thing so that we can allow this. And they're taking away from the Word of God. It's not good enough. That's one of the problems that you have today as well under the charismatic umbrella when it comes to so-called prophets and so-called apostles. Even even the idea of the, the speaking in tongues thing can get into this realm as well. What was the purpose of tongues in the Scripture? Was it... To have some type of a private prayer language. That's what people will say. But there is never a time within the scripture you find any kind of a prayer language done in anything other than your native tongue. What was the purpose of tongues? Anytime people spoke in tongues, they were speaking the word of the Lord. When the, when the apostles on the day of Pentecost, when they're standing and they're, and they're preaching and people are hearing in their native tongue, what are they hearing? Could it be that the very things that Peter is saying that we can read in English in Acts 2 about the the grandeur of of the Lord, of of the Messiah who has come, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, that the Lord has raised up and vindicated Him, is that what they're hearing? Most likely, yes. They're hearing the gospel. They're hearing the truth of God. And actually, the purpose of tongues... In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's not an unknown language. It's not gibberish. It's not ecstatic speech. It is actual languages. Unknown to the speaker, but miraculously given. Just as a footnote here, let's just think about this just for a moment. What is the greater miracle? Being able to just speak gibberish and somebody decide to get up and try to interpret what you're saying. Or... Being able to speak a language that you've never learned before, fluently. What's the greater miracle? But if you go to 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul ties it to a specific prophecy in Isaiah 26, I believe it is. That tongues were given not for a sign to them who believe, but to them who do not believe. And that specific passage that is referenced of Isaiah 26 that is quoted in 1 Corinthians 14 is a judgment against unbelieving Israel. Tongues are given for a sign to them that the Lord is speaking through a different people. You see a great example of that in Acts chapter 10 and 11 when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius who is a Gentile, preaches the gospel. Cornelius is converted and Cornelius starts to speak in tongues. He's speaking in languages. Glossolalia is languages. That's the Greek word, languages. And what do Peter's companions say? Now we know that salvation has come to the Gentiles, for they received the Spirit just as we did. 
And then what do they do? They carry that message to the others. The Gentiles receive the Spirit of God. It was a sign that salvation had come to the Gentiles, and it was a sign against unbelieving Israel. That's why tongues were given. But here's the point of that. Got off on a little footnote there. Whenever tongues are, are occurring, it's, it's perhaps often we could look at it in the sense, the same sense of what we look at is in, in prophesying. When you're foretelling or you're giving new revelation in that specific particular time of redemptive history, that what they are saying is in line of the new revelation that's being given. So if they begin to speak in tongues today, what new revelation are they giving? If any. I listened to Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg said he was in a church one time and somebody started speaking in tongues and all of this sort of thing. And then the, the pastor had said something to the effect, is there anybody here that can interpret? And it went on for like 30 minutes, nobody saying anything. And finally, someone stood up and said, I believe that the Lord is just telling us that we need, need to give each other a big hug. And he's like, it took you 30 minutes to figure that out? It's nonsense. When people are so-called prophets today or apostles, and they have a word from the Lord, they're demonstrating that the Bible is not sufficient enough. They have to have something new. And interestingly... Even they admit that most, up to 80% or higher of the so-called prophecies that are done today are false. They admit that. But you don't have to be 100% right. That's not the biblical standard. If you got it wrong, you died. So whenever you have so-called prophets or anybody who's supposedly coming up with new revelation, they are demonstrating in the very act or the very teaching the Bible is not enough. You have to have something more. We have the complete revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. Everything that we need to know for faith and life is in the Scripture. So this is where we look. We don't trust someone's idea who says that they're a prophet or an apostle who have terrible theology and then trust something that they say we go to the only sufficient source and that is the word of God this is what we look to and that's some of the very things that Moses is saying because when you fail to do that you're inevitably going to be led into error either gross error, error uh, terrible error getting into heresy or just you could look at it in the sense of perhaps minor error or heresy. Either way, the Bible is sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient. This is what we trust in. This is what we look to. This is where we learn. This is what feeds our soul. And if we look at the whole process of sanctification, sanctification does not occur apart from the word of God. The Spirit does not work independently of the Word that He inspired. So just as Moses is telling the people, don't add to the Word of God. Don't take away from the Word of God. We're not talking about translations either. We're not talking about King James versus this and some of the arguments there. We're talking about altogether taking away from what God has plainly said within the Scripture or adding to it. Adding to it has been something that has been happening for centuries. All you have to do is look at the Roman Catholic Church. Adding to. The scriptures are sufficient and they are trustworthy. That's the very thing Moses emphasized. That's the very thing that we need to understand too. And he has revealed himself truly in the scripture and giving us a, a sure word of who he is. And because he has done this for the people of Israel... Then you have this, this question that is given. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? What nation is there like Israel compared to any other that has a God so near 
Now, this is something that we learn in theology. We learn that God is transcendent, that he is high, he is lifted, he is lifted up, he is, he's in that category all to himself. He's, he's the only holy God. All of this language that we use to describe his grandeur and his majesty, and yet our God is near. He is imminent. He is near to those that are his. He is the only true God. And that's the uniqueness of Israel compared to any other. They have gods is what he says later on. They have these idols that are in the form of men and women and birds and, and animals and all of this that can't smell, that can't taste, that can't hear. They're made of wood. They're nothing. But the one true God has truly revealed himself to this specific people and has blessed them, revealing himself to them truly. So that comes about. What nation is there like Israel that has a God so near whenever they call upon Him? That is indeed the uniqueness not only of Israel under the Old Covenant, but the uniqueness of the people of God in the New Covenant. There is no other God like our God. Because all other gods are false gods. You have this saying today, well, especially within the monotheistic religions. Well, isn't Allah or isn't uh, the God that the Jews serve today and the God of Christianity and etc., etc., aren't they basically the same God? Well, is the God of Islam the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? No, He's not. How about the God of Judaism today? They call him Yahweh. They recognize him as Yahweh, Adonai, etc. But is the God that they serve today the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? No. You take any other monotheistic so-called religion that is out there, are they serving the one true God in the sense of the triune God of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? If they're not, it's not the same God. Mormons don't serve the same God. Jehovah's Witnesses don't serve the same God. The uniqueness and the, the great blessing of the people of God is that we do serve the one true God who has truly revealed himself through the word that is sufficient. For he is the triune God of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why when it comes to the Christian faith, the uniqueness about the Christian faith against any other is, is it's not the same kind of a conversion to the Christian faith as it is any other. It's not as if one day you decide you're an unbeliever, you're unregenerate, you just decide to become a Muslim. People decide to become a Muslim and they say, well, maybe I like this, maybe I like that, and I'll convert to Islam. Or maybe I like this over here. Maybe I'm marrying someone who's already a Jew, who's Jewish, I have to convert to the Jewish faith in order to marry them. So you go through the process of conversion, all of this sort of thing, and now you're considered to be Jewish. That is not the same way when it comes to the Christian faith. The Christian faith, in order to be in the group of the Christian faith, something happens to you that is not like any other religion. And that is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God. This is something that happens to you. That is done, this supernatural work by God, done in you. That doesn't happen in any of these other religions. Why? Because they're false religions. Sometimes that, that makes people uncomfortable when you start talking about the exclusivity of the Christian faith. It's either you come through Christ or you don't come at all. It's not that you can choose some other path and, and get there the same way. There is only one path to the one true God. And that's through Christ. And when you come through the one mediator between God and men, which is Christ Jesus, then you have that blessing of serving the living and true God who though he is high and lifted up is the God who is near that you can call upon 
at any time and know that this particular God, the only God, is the one who does care, who does love you, who does speak through his word, who does protect, who does encourage, who does comfort. He is the God who who blesses his people and cares for his people. No other God can because no other God exists. This is that, that great blessing that Israel has received. There is no other God. And so the, the, the exhortation that comes thereafter in light of this is only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. And so he reminds them of the day that they stood before the Lord at Horeb when the Lord told them to assemble. The mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. These are things that the people of Israel saw. An entire assembly saw. The entire nation saw. So it wasn't in the sense of a couple of people over here and they come back and they say, we just had this amazing revelation. You should have saw what we saw. Like, well, what did you see? The one true God revealed himself in such a way that the entire nation saw the manifestation of his glory. They saw the mountain consume with the fire of God. They heard the sound of his words. They actually heard him speak. And they were so frightened when they heard him speak, they go to Moses and they say, you talk to him. Please ask him, don't, don't, don't do that again, please. Because they thought they were going to die. So Moses, you're the man. But they got to hear him speak. Actually hearing the voice of the Lord, the entire nation, after seeing a manifestation of his presence. But there's that add-ins concerning the glory and the majesty of the God who has truly revealed himself. <clears throat> he said, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. Only a voice. So watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at horror from the midst of the fire. So that you do not act corruptly and make graven images for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And don't worship the host of heaven. When God had truly revealed himself in such a way that they saw the mountain consumed in the fire and they heard the Lord speak, that is the, the truth that is brought back to them, to this generation. You didn't see any form. You heard words. There is no form that God has taken that you can even remotely liken him to. So don't make any idols whether the idols of human beings or the idols of any kind of an animal, which is exactly what the Eastern Indian philosophies do. That's why they have over 330 million gods, because everything is a god. Talking about Hinduism and the offshoots of Hinduism. There's a god for everything. And the one true God says, you diminish my glory when you liken me to anything in the created order. What can you compare him to? The glorious, majestic God whose throne is in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. What are you going to compare him to? You're going to compare him to the sun? This ball of fire up there, you're going to compare him to that? Or the other host of heaven? What are you going to compare him to? There's nothing. Because he's more valuable than all of them. He's more grand than all of them. He's more majestic than all of them. You can't compare him to anything. So the warning is there. 
that goes back to the beginning of the Ten Commandments, don't make any idols. Because you have nothing to compare it to. And when you do, you diminish the glory of God when you do that. Whether it's in your mind, you know, that's some, some difficulties that can happen, and I'm not saying that it always happens, but it can happen, is, is some of the, the problems with some Jesus movies. Because they have an actor on there who is portraying Jesus, and while that's all fine and good, you know, giving the story of Christ or whatever the case may be, in the moments that you begin to close your eyes and to pray and you're visualizing that one right there, you're committing idolatry or a picture because they don't compare to the true God or the true Christ. And we inevitably commit idolatry when we picture something that we have seen as we pray. There's nothing. Nothing that we can. Because he is absolutely unique. And there is no comparison. And perhaps this is, this is the backdrop of what the Apostle Paul is speaking of in Romans 1. Professing to be wise, these who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, they became fools. Because they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for that of corruptible man and of four-footed animals, etc. There is no comparison to the glorious God that has, that has called us, that is near to us, that lives in us, that has called us to be His own. Nothing to liken Him to. And so, in the, in the time in which the people of Israel are going into the land, remember this, the Word of God is sufficient. Remember this, there are no other gods that can compare to the God of Israel. Remember this, and reflect upon this, know this, because in the day in which you divert from these specific truths concerning the very nature and character of God, then you have the warning passages. The warning passages always have to be there for that very purpose, for those who would divert from the truth of God. And that in itself is really a grace of God to say, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't really leave it ambiguous here. He doesn't say, you're going to get it. You're going to have a bad day in the day that you do this. No, no, no. The Lord says, in the day that you do this, this is exactly what's going to happen. This specific nation is going to be conquered by another nation, scattered out among the nations to serve other gods, taken from their own homeland. And that is exactly what happened to the people of Israel. The northern kingdoms were taken by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken by Babylon. And then they were convert, Then the, the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. And then the Persians were taken over by the Greeks. And the Greeks were taken over by the Romans. And all that time, Israel was under the power of another. They were, per, they were permitted to come back home from Persia. Because as this warning is being given, even the grace of God showing His grace and and that in itself is the uniqueness of who He is, is explaining to them. There you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search with him, for Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. That is exactly what happened to the people of Israel. Everything that God has said came to pass. For God's enemies, this is what is said of him. Verse 24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. Because he's a jealous God... And he is a consuming fire. And it means exactly what you think it is, a fire that consumes everything. There's really no play on words when it comes to the Hebrew words or it comes to the, the Greek words in the New Testament. It means exactly what you think it is. It's a fire that consumes everything. Very clear. This is the very nature of God when it comes to those who have spurned his goodness 
and his grace and his love and have turned from him, his enemies are consumed like a fire. Consumes everything. For he is a jealous God. He is, he is jealous for his own glory. He does not share his glory with another. And so he will not permit his people to serve him and other gods. There's the warning. Now, nowadays, <clears throat> it's not necessarily that the people of God, whenever they get into the times of disobedience, will just carve up a new God or something along that line. It's, it's not really that kind of a thing. But you have to understand this of the nature of what idolatry is. It's not just making a new God and having some kind of a visual or whatever and bowing down and worshiping it. But you think about the nature of idolatry. The nature of idolatry is not regarding the Lord as holy and unique and your only source of hope and peace and joy, the only source of worship, the only source of praise, the only source of thank thankfulness, and you turn that around and give it to something else. Something else is elevated to a position that it shouldn't have, and you are more zealous for this, you are more excited for this, you are more passionate about this than you are the Lord your God. That in itself is the essence of what idolatry does. And that is something that even the people of God sometimes allow to happen. What in your life is most important? What in your life is most important? Is it your job? Your parents? Your children? Your friends? Your hobbies? Your wealth? What is most important to you? And that in itself really shows us exactly where most of our passion and excitement lies. Because sometimes we think of serving the Lord and we think of um, the uniqueness of God and we, we talk about those things, but sometimes it just seems boring. It just seems boring to us. We allow it to seem boring to us. Our hearts are not excited when we recognize the uniqueness of God and that we have the privilege of knowing Him. And you do. That is not just some fairy tale reality or whatever. You have the privilege of knowing the one true God and to come before Him at any time that you desire because you are in the Son. And it also happens easily when you focus too much on the temporal things and not thinking of the things eternally. These things pass away. What then is going to be the source of all of my hope and joy and peace and all of the things that we've been reading in John 17? What is it that Jesus has left for His people? Sanctification, joy, and peace, and protection from the Lord, the care of the Lord, all of this sort of thing. When everything else is gone, this is what we have. And that joy is still retained because... He is eternal. Everything else is temporal. And because He has bestowed grace upon you, you get to spend eternity with Him to know Him even more so rather than being the objects of His hatred against sin. So when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about Christ, the Lord of glory, dying for us, that should really stir within our hearts. Great emotion to think, what God is there? Like the people of God that has a God so near. What other people is there that, that, is, that has a God like ours who would die on behalf of his people? What other God does that? What other God is there? That... that that produces excitement in us. You know, when it comes to reading and studying the Scripture and understanding the sufficiency of the Scripture, that everything we need to know for faith and life is there, that's because we don't know those things because we don't take the time to, to dig in there and to learn. But when you can just capture and allow your heart to be captured by those realities and those truths, then you can't help but just keep keep going. This is what he said here. This is, this, is, this is 
This is my Lord who did this. This is my Lord who called me. These are the things that He has prepared for me. Who am I? But He does it. Why? Because those whom He foreknew, those whom He loved intimately beforehand, those that He decided in eternity past to make the objects of His love, to them He is showing the riches of His grace in Christ. So that's when you're like, I don't understand why. It's not about understanding why. We can never understand why, especially if we know ourselves at any length. We don't know why God loves us. But in spite of that, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1 that he has lavished on us the riches of his grace. That stirs our hearts to recognize the, the God whom we serve and what he has done on behalf of sinners. And serving Him faithfully brings blessing from God. Now granted, these particular blessings that He is saying to His people in this chapter are blessings, these temporal blessings, <clears throat> that if they, if they serve the Lord faithfully, all of that, that they are, are partakers of the blessings of God. They get to enjoy the temporal mercies of God in the land in which He has promised to give them. There is blessing there. Now, the Christian faith is not, is not geared towards prosperity. And actually, if you just begin to think about it just for a moment, what exactly is he saying to them? That I'm going to make you, every, every single family that is in Israel, I'm going to make you so rich and prosperous and all of this? No, he doesn't say that. But all the care and provision that the people of Israel are, are, are taking and, and experiencing, regardless of how much they have or how much they don't have, they recognize that it is coming from the Lord. He is blessing them with it. That is the same, same thing when it comes to us in our day. That everything that we are privileged to enjoy, that we have for our continued existence and all of that, the things that we can give to others or do for others or that we ourselves enjoy are all blessings of God. The greatest blessing, of course, is to know Him and know that everything that is coming is by His hand. And so what does that produce in us? Greater praise, greater thanks, greater love, greater devotion. And when the difficult times come, not, a result, not as a result of disobedience, but when the difficult times come as happens, and it's not a surprise to us, is what Paul, or Peter says, then we have the great blessing of knowing that our God is with us. Our God is carrying us. Our God is comforting us. And He is reminding us of His goodness in the times in which we begin to, to try to wrestle within ourselves of what is happening in our life, He is there to say, My grace is sufficient. Even in the difficult times, the Lord is continually blessing His people. So it goes back to this very thing then. What other God is there like our God? How can we serve Him? How can we, how can we delight in Him? That, that He knows that we delight in Him. What can we do? Understand that His Word is sufficient for everything that we need to know about Him. That's, that's an amazing thing. You don't got to go to this resource and that resource and all of that to try to figure out who our God is. He lays it all out. This is who I am. This is what I've done for you. So don't take away from it. Don't try to add in more to it. It's sufficient to express to you and I the uniqueness of who He is, the grandeur of who He is, and to remember because He is the only true God that He is zealous for His own glory. So don't allow anything temporal or earthly to take the place in which God Himself resides and recognize that as, as we delight in Him and as we are serving Him, then the blessing of God is always there upon His people. His favor is with you. Let us not forget those, those realities and those truths concerning our faith and the uniqueness of the Christian faith and the privilege and the blessing that we have of knowing the one true God through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together.
Holy Father, thank you once again for this portion of your word. Thank you so much for the full revelation of who you are that we have, that we hold in our hands every Lord's Day, every Wednesday, whenever we're at home, we have it right there at our disposal. Everything that we need to understand and know about who you are, specifics about who you are, it's all there. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in such a way that that we can begin to grasp something about who you are. Thank you for revealing yourself even more fully through the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man who pitched his tent among his people, that we can read the things that he says, read of the things that he did, and understand your character and your nature to an even greater extent. Thank you for your word. And Father, may we honor you by honoring your word and looking to it as the only source for our knowledge of God. Father, we desire so much to serve you and to honor you. We all fail in not regarding you as holy. We all fail in not delighting in you as we should. Father, continue to work in our hearts and continue to conform us, continue to sanctify us. As Jonathan Edwards prayed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Father, indeed, for all of us, stamp eternity on our eyeballs, that we may view and see things in view of eternity. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for the Holy Spirit of God who resides within us, teaching us, conforming us, who is indeed our advocate here on earth. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.